Uh, happy birthday, Victory. <laughs> happy 31st birthday. Hey, uh, we got the whole Victory family with us this weekend. Hey, let's welcome Victory Midtown, Victory Hamilton Mill. We got our family online as well as here in the house in Norcross. What's up, everybody? Hey, it is our birthday this weekend. And if you've uh, been with Victory for any amount of time, you know that on our anniversaries, we love to have the people who are closest to the heart, closest to our heart, be able to come in. And this uh, this anniversary is no exception. We actually had the closest people to the heart of Victory here today. And I was actually praying about uh, asking God, hey, is there a scripture that we kind of bring into this moment right here? And God took me to 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse uh, 10, which right in the middle is 31, if you notice that, 34 first anniversary. Did you get that? 31? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, which Paul says this. He says, by the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise master builder, and now someone else is building on top of it. And I couldn't think of any better way to talk about this couple right here than to say that we today have two wise master builders uh, in our presence, that we now get the pleasure to stand on their shoulders and to build on top of the foundation that they laid for 31 years. And so let's do this here in Norcross, at Hamilton Mill, at Midtown, even online if you're at home. Let's stand up to our feet and let's welcome our founding pastors, Pastor Dennis and Colleen Rouse. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, the, all of this gratitude needs to go right to the throne, doesn't it? Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. Because that is indeed what we're celebrating, 31 years of God's faithfulness. Hey, have a seat, family. So good to see all of you this morning. I'm just going to take a few moments here because I have two things that I want to just impart to you and encourage you about. And this is an anniversary. This is a day of celebration and I just want to encourage you, hey, don't forget to celebrate. I think many of us have put our celebration on pause. And we feel like we have to wait for certain things to come into play in order to celebrate. But you and I have everything we have ever needed to come into play to celebrate. Because I feel like the Lord said to me, some people are discouraged and disappointed and they continue to live in perpetual disappointment because they're looking at things that cannot be reversed. You know, there are some things that cannot be reversed, but there is absolutely nothing that cannot be redeemed. He redeemed our lives from destruction. So I want to encourage you, Stop looking at your life through a microscope. Stop looking at things so myopically that all you can see is right in front of you on your device telling you what the latest data is about COVID. And I want you to instead remember that eternal life has entered into you. You already have a portion of eternity. And instead of looking at our lives through a microscope, maybe we need to be looking through a telescope and allow eternity to inform your present because everything we need is in him. I mean, we just took that moment to worship and praise and it kind of resets our expectations when we remind ourselves, let everything else pass away. Let everything be removed except for one thing, my Savior, my Lord, my Redeemer. And the more you spend your time worshiping him at the throne, the more the context of how you see your future and your ability to have hope will change. Because praise and worship is not just for a momentary lifting of things. It is to reset your expectations so that you can hope. <laughs> and the other thing I want to remind you of is our God is so good. And it's not time for you to be silent. I know a lot of us can feel a little bit of shame these days because we've seen leaders, we've seen people who have called themselves Christians do things that seem to be out of context with what we see in the written word. But I want to remind you, this is not a time to be ashamed. 
Because Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This is not a time for you to hide as a Christian because of what other Christians done. This is a time for you to stand up on the wall, take your place in prayer, and take your place as a proclaimer of truth. There are truth seekers out there. And if I remember what my Bible says, it doesn't say pray for the harvester. It doesn't say pray for the harvest. It said pray for the harvesters. Because Jesus said there are people out there waiting to be reaped. And if we go by what Jesus said instead of social media, then maybe we will be salt and light in this earth. You are salt and light. You are the standard bearer. And others are waiting for you to open your mouth and proclaim the truth. So do so. Do so. And then you're going to experience that joy and fulfillment because that's where fulfillment comes from when we fulfill our God-given purpose. God bless you. Amen. <laughs> hey, let me just, first of all, speak to all of you that are watching us online because I know whenever it snows, in the south, everybody freaks out, don't they? I mean, it snowed a little bit last night, sunny this morning, it's beautiful, there's no snow or ice on the ground, yet people still call into church. Are we having church today? We are having church today. We are having church today. All right, so you can get up. If you didn't know this, you can get up and come to church later. Come to the one o'clock service if that's better. But I also, also wanna say hey to all of you at Hamilton Mill, and hey to all of you at Midtown, because I haven't seen you in a while, and I'm hoping Colleen and I are going to get to now visit your campuses now over the next few months and be able to speak with you. And we're so thankful for Mo and Kendra and the, and the wonderful campus at Midtown. They have a new building that they're now starting to get ready. Uh, hopefully, it's by the, by the summertime, we'll be in that building. And once you get into a new building, I, we've already done this several times in our church, a church begins to grow and explode and reach the Midtown area. And so we're excited for Midtown. And we're also excited for Hamilton Mill with my brother Randy and Sherry. Sherry, by the way, it's her birthday this weekend. So happy birthday, Sherry Cochran, from us, from our family. And uh, we're so excited about that. But you know what? One of the things that I'm extremely thankful for. Now, we've been doing this for 31 years. It's hard to believe that 31 years ago, on this day, we were just about a mile and a half up the road here across uh, Jimmy Carter Boulevard, across the interstate, in a daycare center with six people starting a church, thinking we had no idea that victory would become what it would become. And here we are 31 years on the other side of it, now having transitioned out as the senior pastor's to Johnson and Summer Bowie, who, by the way, the series that we just did, Emancipating Greatness, was probably one of my all-time favorite series in the history of our church, and if you did not participate in it, or you, for some reason you missed one of those messages, you need to go back and watch it, because it is an amazing reset for this new year, and really helps us to get back on track with where God is taking this church going forward, amen? And I am so proud of you two and the job that you have done in this transition over the last six months since we've been out of here. We are proud mamas and papas, aren't we, Colleen? We are just so proud of them and proud of the team that they've assembled, probably the best administrative organizational team we've ever had at Victory. We have an amazing pastoral team now. Some of them are new, some of them are old, but it's just an amazing future. And we get to be a, a part of this even going forward. And so Johnson asked me, he said, would you, would you and Colleen like to say something, preach on the anniversary service and, and just share from your heart, just whatever's on your heart. And we kind of thought about what we were gonna share. And then uh, probably about a month ago, the Lord began to stir a word inside of me that I've been sharing around the country, wherever I've preached around the country. And I felt like, gosh, I've shared it in all these other churches, but I've not shared it in our own church. And I feel like this is a word not just for our church, but it's a word for the church. And it's kind of, if I could say it this way, it's kind of a descriptive word of what I would call the DNA of victory. It's the DNA of what makes us who we are. It's the genetic makeup of our church. And it's a word that God gave me years and years ago that kind of got into the fabric of our church it's kind of at the context of the four pillars of our church, anywhere, everywhere from building families to transforming communities to reconciling cultures and ultimately impacting nations. And it's at the heart 
of what makes churches really healthy, and it's, it's basically the core of winning people to Jesus. How do we get more people into the kingdom of God? When it's all said and done, let's just face it, when it's all said and done and our life is over, it, and we stand before the throne of God, and we give an accounting of our life, of everything that we've done here on this earth, the number one jewel that God is looking for in our crown is how many people have you brought into the kingdom? How many people have you rescued from hell and brought them into heaven and helped their soul to be redeemed for eternity? How many people's lives have you made a difference in? Not how many truths have you proposed that you believe maybe they're true and maybe they're not and you try to enforce your way or your will on people, but how many people have you brought into the kingdom? So let me ask you a question. Just think through this question seriously as a a follower of Jesus, those of you that are followers of Jesus, all of you at all campuses, how many people have you impacted for the kingdom? How many people have you brought into the kingdom of God? You've literally taken them out of darkness into light, and you can honestly say that a part of their life is connected to your life. You may or may not have led them in a prayer, but at some point you had an impact on their life. You were a living, breathing Jesus representative in the earth to them. And because of you, their lives were transformed. Not how, many, how much money you made, not how big of a career you had, not how much fun you had in life, but how many people's lives have you impacted? And I started thinking about that years ago when we started this church. How do we get a church that's not just a place that people come to on Sunday morning, a location, a building, an identity of a religion? How do we get the church to become the real church to a lost and dying world? And by the way, the world is still lost and still dying more than ever now. You have more than ever people leaving the church, leaving Christ, leaving their relationships with God. There's a huge void right now on the earth between humans and God. And the only thing that makes up that void, it's not politics, it's not policies, it's not all those things, it's the church. It's whether the church is gonna step into that void and going to make the difference, it's going to be the bridge from the lost into the kingdom of God. How do we do that? All right, so there's a scripture in the book of Matthew, and if you have a Bible, you might wanna turn there, Matthew chapter five, where Jesus makes this really important statement to the church, and here's what he says in Matthew chapter five, verse 13, and he said, I'm gonna read the message paraphrase because I like the way it reads. It kind of gives you the, the real, you know, modern day version of what Jesus was saying. Here's what it says. Let me tell you why you are here. Jesus says, let me tell you why you're on this earth. This is why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bears, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Everybody say shine. Shine. Keep open house. That's a good word in COVID season. When we're all closing our house, putting our masks on, hiding behind our garage and doors. Keep open house. Do you think this is the first plague that's ever hit the earth? Oh my gosh, this is like the millionth plague that's hit the earth, but yet we are all freaking out because it's our plague. It's the plague we're going through. He says, keep open house. What does he say? Be generous with your lives. Not self-protect, but be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. 
So he tells us this is the real reason you've been given life. This is the reason why you're on this earth. The reason you're on this earth is not for, for just making a family or a career or a life where you enjoy life. You're on this earth for a purpose. And people who don't understand that purpose end up messing up this life. They end up living this life without purpose and never fulfilling what God put them here for. But he says you're here to make a difference in people's lives. So the question then becomes, how do I do that? And what we've done is we've messed it up in the church. We've messed it up. We've tried to do it through religion instead of through relationship. We've tried to do it through a set of laws instead of the law of love. We've tried to do it by a set of rules and regulations instead of helping people that don't like rules and regulations discover the only way they can live a life under the law is through the amazing grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We cannot expect a dying world to do right until they're born again, until they're saved. And until they're saved, they're going to live like they're not saved. And I can't understand why the church gets so frustrated and so angry with an unsaved world who is simply living out who they are without Christ. Instead of getting mad and espousing all the things we do on social media, what if we did something different to turn the hearts of people back to Christ, to become the flavor and the color of God. This year is a big year for both Colleen and I because we are both celebrating our 40th year of being a Christian, 40 years of knowing Jesus, 40 years. Now, what's, what's unique about that, if you read biblical history, you'll understand God does some interesting things in 40-year spans. 40-year spans, if you read through the Old Testament, a lot of the kings, the, the different major biblical characters had 40 years, and then they transitioned to something new or something different to another leader. David, probably one of the more prominent leaders, 40 years, and then transitioned to Solomon. And you just go through the, through the Bible, and you see a lot of things about 40 years. And so we're, we're all about, like, what's our next? What's, what's the next thing? And our next thing is to impart this one truth, one truth that we want to impart before we die to the whole body of Christ. Not just to you, the church, but to the whole body of Christ. This is the truth. This is the truth. And this is what the message is. This is the DNA of victory. This is it. It's a real simple two words. Real simple two words. Listen to this. Value people. Value people. Let's say it together. Value people, not value people that are just like us, not value people that are our race, not value people that are in the same economic stratus, not value people that are going through the same struggles we're going through, but value people. Now, what would happen if the church just got that? If the church transitioned to this place of valuing people, can I just tell you that a church will only grow in its proportion of valuing people. The reason why churches stay small is because somewhere in the journey, that's as many people as they value. They can only value so many people. And I remember when we were small, the Lord said to me, how many people can you fit into your heart? How many people, how much capacity do you have in your heart for people? And I know that over the 31 years, God has grown that capacity so that we've moved beyond just building families, even beyond just transforming the community around us or even reconciling the cultures to impacting the world. Different churches have different callings. Some churches seem to have a calling to just reach the people in that community. Other churches have a calling to reach the city that they're in. Other churches have a calling to reach the region that they're in. Other churches have a calling to reach the nation that they're in. But then there are some churches that God puts his hand on. And by the way, you are in one of those churches that God says, I want you to impact the entire world with the gospel. 
But it starts with this concept of valuing people. And can I just tell you something right now? We're living with a value void in people. Everything you see playing out, the racial tension, the economic disparity, the immigration issues, the political issues, are all rooted in value voids. People seeking value where they're not feeling valued and they're voting for candidates they, they think value them because they have been not seen by other groups of people. And what ends up happening is everybody's seeking to be valued instead of value. They're asking for people to look at their situation, take into consideration what they're going through, look at their plight instead of thinking about someone outside of themselves. All right, so Paul writes this famous scripture, probably one of my life scriptures, in Philippians chapter two and verse three. Here's what he says. Do nothing, everybody say do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests <laughs> of the others. Then Jesus kind of surmises this in one famous statement. In Matthew chapter seven and verse 12, he said, here is a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's laws and prophets and this is what you get. The principle of doing for others what you want others to do for you. You know, that principle works in every concept, works in marriage. Every marriage that goes bad is a marriage where the people begin to polarize themselves saying, you are not doing enough for me. And so I'm going to stay over here until you do enough for me. And if you go long enough doing not, not doing enough for me, I'm divorcing you. And when I get in a marriage counseling situation, I simply turn it around. I say, what if you did for the other person what you want them to do for you? Do you think that could possibly shift the relationship? If you're in a difficult marriage, just shift the relationship. Quit waiting for the other person to do for you what you want done for yourself and just simply do it for them. This is the principle that never fails. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. You are simply reaping what you're sowing. If you don't like what you're reaping, then you change what you're sowing. You don't sit back and wait for somebody to notice what you're not reaping and try to give to you something that you haven't sown towards. Amen? All right, so what does value people look like? What does that look like? In Christ, what does that look like? I'm gonna give you three things, three thoughts that the Lord showed me that kind of start you on this journey of valuing people. The first one is this, valuing other people's point of view. Valuing other people's point of view. Right now, we're living in a world that everyone is espousing their point of view. They're espousing it through the news, they're espousing it through speeches, they're espousing it through social media, they're espousing it with their friends. Everybody has a point of view. You have a point of view. And everybody's point of view generally, secretly, not really openly talked about, becomes inside them, they think, God's point of view. They think my point of view is aligned with God. God's point of view. So therefore, if you don't agree with my point of view, then you are wrong. And so you now have a battle of everyone espousing their point of view, arguing with each other, battling with each other, trying to convince the other person that their point of view is superior to the other person's point of view. I started looking at this a little bit from a from just sort of a social, uh, sociological point of view. Like, how did we get to where we are? Why are we such a divided nation? Why are so many people against each other? Why is it us against them? Why is it Democrats against Republicans? Why is it conservatives against liberals? Why is everybody against each other? Why do we think the other side is wrong? Anti-God, can't be right, doesn't know who God is. 
Because everyone puts their point of view at the, at the top of what's most important. What's most important. That's why you could be a, a social person, like you could be a uh, right-wing conservative, and your point of view from a Christian perspective might be the number one issue in America is abortion. Abortion is the number one, and how could anyone calling themselves a Christian vote for anybody that would support abortion? That's your point of view, because that's big on your top list, and you think that's God's top list, that's the number one thing. But what if you were on another side of the coin where you were all about racial issues, racial inequality, racial disparity, economic inequality, and you would think the number one issue is equality. The number one issue is bringing people that are not having anything into a place where they have something, health care, whatever, social economic uh, equality. And so that's, and how could anybody not vote for anybody that doesn't support that? They cannot be a Christian. And we elevate our point of views. Now, here's what you don't know. We're living in a world now where algorithms form our point of view. We're algorithms. We live in an algorithm world. And we didn't even know it. See, my generation, we grew up, we grew up watching television. We grew up watching television. We grew up watching ABC, NBC, CBS. Some of you millennials don't even know what those, that even stands for. You have never turned on a television to watch television. The only, you look at it, it's just a screen that plays out YouTube or plays out Netflix or plays out some kind of on-demand thing that you can say when I want to watch, when I want to watch it. But my generation, we still watch television. We still watch the news. But what shifted over time is the news shifted from actually giving you the real news to now giving you the opinions about the news. So now news is no longer really news. We don't even know what's true in news anymore. If we watch Fox News, we're going to get a Republican right-wing agenda. If we watch NBC or MSNBC or CNN, we're going to get a left-wing liberal agenda. And we're going to form our opinions and our thoughts around what we spend our algorithm time feeding ourselves. And do you know that every time you turn on the television, just the television, you didn't know this, somebody's tracking what you're watching. They're marketing to what you're watching. They're sending you things in the mail according to what you watch. And they form you into a little group that they can just surround you with algorithm of information that just feeds what you want to hear. Social media is the same way. Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these things are founded with people who have a point of view that they want to subtly get into you to form your opinion that will align with their point of view. So whether you like it or not, you are, that are young who feed yourself on social media, if you'll notice, all the people that you're connected with seem to share the same point of view. I noticed this, that before when I used to click on Facebook or Instagram, I used to get everybody's feed. I used to get the liberal feed and the conservative feed. But as soon as I started watching certain things that were more conservative oriented or clicking on things that seemed to be something I was more interested in on the conservative side, all my liberal friends disappeared. And all of their posts disappeared and I no longer heard from them anymore. People that I used to communicate with were no longer allowed to see what I was saying and I was no longer allowed to see what they were saying. So that I began to live in an algorithm bubble that formed and shaped my way of thinking. Now whether you like it or not, that has happened to you. And what happens with that is it creates a problem on the inside of valuing other people's point of view. I want you to listen to Paul, what he says about this. It's an amazing thing. This is almost 2,000 years ago that he wrote this, but it's interesting how important this is to get right now. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, he says this. Even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, 
I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious people and non-religious people, meticulous moralists, loose living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever, everybody say whoever, whoever, what he's saying is, Every person, regardless of their point of view, is just as valuable as another person who shares my point of view. That's what he's saying. I didn't, look, I didn't take on their way of life. This is the fear of many Christians. If I hang out with these kind of people, I'll start taking on their way of life. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from what? Their point of view. I become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. All right, so let me illustrate this. This just happened to me last weekend. I came back from a trip in Dallas where I was speaking and uh, uh we had a driver pick, pick me up because it was late at night. And the guy that picked me up, I had remembered him one time before. He was a 21-year-old young man from Pakistan who was a Muslim. And I briefly had a conversation with him before, but we're in the car. And I, I, would, I just felt like I, needed to, I need to find out. I need to learn more about what a young Muslim believes in the nation of, in America. So I started asking him a question. I said, so what faith are you? And he says, I'm a Muslim. I said, are you a devout Muslim? He said, very devout. My family's very devout. I said, really? I said, can you help me understand the Muslim faith? I said, I, I'm a Christian, I have a Christian faith, but I really want to understand your faith. I said, tell me a little bit about your faith. Give me a kind of a, 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 a different view so that I understand what you believe, how you function, and all this stuff. So he starts downloading all the things he believed about the Muslim faith, what he believed about Allah, what he believed about sin, what he believed, I said, what do you believe about the afterlife? He started talking to me about the afterlife and what that looked like. What do you believe about sin? He said, I believe in sin. And I said, I said what do you do if you sin? He said, I have to repent of my sins. I have to ask God to forgive me of my sins. I said, okay, so there is a repentance in the, in the Muslim faith. Absolute. He said, in fact, in the Muslim faith, one of the things we struggle with in, Christ, in the Christian faith is we have a little bit more law than Christians do. We don't drink. We don't eat certain foods. There's a lot of things we don't do uh, in the Muslim faith. We don't have sex before marriage, all these kind of things. And I said, well, I said, in the Christian faith, we are supposed to be doing that too. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so anyway, we get into this conversation, and as I'm, as I'm valuing his perspective and his point of view, I can see him soften to me to the point where now I see, okay, now I have an inroad to share my faith. So I said, would you like to hear what Christians believe? Would you like to hear what their faith is about? He said, absolutely. I, he says, I've never really had, he said, to be honest with you, sir, he said, no one's ever bothered me in America to ask me what my faith is about. You're the first person that I've ever rode in the car with has asked me this. He said, most people, when they find out I'm a Muslim, they just, they just stop talking to me. I said, really? And he said, yeah, and I think some of them are Christians, but they just they think if I talk to a Muslim, I, I'm, I'm breaking some law of God or something, so I can't talk to them. I said, well, let me tell you what the Christian faith is. So I talked to him about it. I said, the big difference in the Christian faith is that when you sin, you don't have to pay a price for your sin. You don't have to go through this, this, this process of earning back the good graces of God through your works in the earth or even afterlife, because in the afterlife of the Muslim faith, you have to pay the price for your sin for a period before you get into the afterlife with heaven. And I said, in, in, in the Christian faith, Jesus took the place for all of our sins. And I began to share the whole concept of the blood of Jesus being shed for the, I said, you believe in Jesus, right? He said, yeah, Jesus is one of our prophets. I said, well, in our faith, he's more than a prophet. He's a savior. He's actually God in the flesh. He's the redeemer of all humankind. In fact, he didn't just come to redeem me. He came to redeem you and every other person in the earth, regardless of what you grew up in. And I said, and through this shed blood, you get forgiveness of your sins. So even though you're not worthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven because he went ahead with his blood, you now can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not only that, 
I said, let me ask you something. Do you have a relationship with God? Like, Allah, do you have a personal relationship? He said, no, no, we don't have a personal. God's distant from us. I said, in our, in our faith, we have a very close, personal relationship with our God. And I could tell as I'm sharing this with him, the wheels are turning. The wheels are turning inside this young 21-year-old. And I'm sure he's, I didn't, I didn't lead him to the Lord that day. I knew that wasn't the time to just say, do you want to get saved? I knew he wasn't ready at that moment. But I started sharing all these things. And I realized, if more Christians would just value people <laughs> instead of, instead of, these Muslims are coming into our nation trying to take over our country. They're building mosques. They're, they need to just go on back to that country they came from. <laughs> Bless the Lord. <laughs> Jesus' name. Y'all get what I'm talking about? All right. All right, so I want you to think about that in light of everyone that thinks differently than you the homosexual community, the liberal community, the other politic community, whatever group, can you value them? Can you sit down and have a conversation without, without freaking out about how they believe or what they think? All right, the second thing, you value people by adding value to people. Now, I, I can just tell you where Christianity went wrong. Christianity went wrong, really went wrong, when they begin to buy into this thought that all I need to do is just preach the gospel and people will get saved. Preach the gospel and people will get saved. So I'm just gonna get on television and preach the gospel. I'm gonna get on the church and preach the gospel. I'm gonna just go into people's houses and preach the gospel. I'm just gonna tell them about Jesus. And then God, it's up to God to move in their hearts if, they want, if, they're, go if they're gonna be saved or if they're not going to be saved. It's all up to God and them at that point. But they don't realize that that's not the way Jesus did it. Jesus did not just preach the gospel. First, before he preached the gospel, he added value to people. And I want you to think about how he added value to people. For example, one of the things he added value to people is he healed them. Before he preached the gospel, he healed them. He healed them miraculously of their sicknesses and diseases, which got their attention. Man, this guy is valuing me before he's preaching to me. Before he's trying to tell me how to get my life straight, he's adding something to me. This is what always gets me when people stand on a street corner and just preach the gospel at people, but they've never done anything for people. Going door to door witnessing, telling people about Jesus, but they've never had anything to do with their personal life. The number one way people come to Jesus is through people who value them. Generally, it's through their family. Secondly, it's through their friends. Thirdly, it's through just basic relationships that they develop along the way. It's rarely in a gospel crusade or a preacher preaching. If somebody responds to an invitation at church, it's because somewhere along the line, somebody has been valuing them in Christ, directing them towards Christ through a God-saved color and flavor of God in their life, which has drawn them to think, I want to be like like that. I want to live like that. When people ask me all the time, they, I, airplanes, wherever I go, what do you do? What do you, what's, your, what's your job? I never tell them I'm a pastor. <laughs> never. Maybe eventually later down the road if I get to know them, but initially I know as soon as I say that, the walls goes up. Because their image of a pastor is somebody trying to tell them what to do with their life. So I generally say, I'm a humanitarian. I say I like to do things in the world to help people. So I said I do things in my city and I do things in my nation and I do things in the world to help people. And I might go through the list of things we do throughout the world. We go build orphanages. We go rescue human trafficking victims, blah, blah, blah. And I'm telling you, even to the most secular, atheistic, humanist in the world, they listen to that. They want to know 
They want to know if you're doing something good for the world because the modern day religion is not Christianity, it's social justice. Every young person now has switched over from Christianity to social justice. And the language of the young America is what are you doing for society, not what are you doing to get people into your church? Did you hear what I just said? So when you start to add value, so I'm, I'm, I'm having lunch one day, this is early on in my life with, with the church, and I'm having lunch with Dr. John Maxwell, who, who, who you've heard here many times, he's a dear friend, he's a mentor to me, and he sits there and he says to me, Dennis, he said, let me, if I could just do, do one thing to help you understand evangelism, he said, it's this one thing, whenever you're with somebody, no matter who you're with, no matter how different opinion they share or what their lifestyle is like, whatever, always leave them with more than when you came into that conversation with. Add some value to them. Leave them with value. Help them with something. So when you're talking to somebody, whether it's somebody you completely disagree with, think, how can I add value to this person? Because if I live a life of adding value, then I have an open door to share my values. (laughs) When you are with people, it's so simple. What can I do with my neighbor to add value to them? What can I do with my coworker to add value to them? What can I do? Not what can I espouse about my religious tradition? What can I espouse about my knowledge of the word? What can I espouse about my political persuasion and what I believe is right and what is wrong and what you should believe and what you shouldn't believe? What can I do to add value so that now I have an open door to share something valuable with you? Maslow has five needs. These are the five needs, the famous five needs of Maslow. Physiological needs, that's basically your your food, your shelter, your security, those kinds of things, well-being, health, financial stability. Love and belonging needs, friendship, family, esteem needs, knowing that you're valuable, knowing that you matter, Self, uh, self-action, I'm sorry, love and belonging needs, safety needs, I, I left that one out, emotional well-being, health, and financial security. Esteem needs, knowing you're well, valuable, knowing you're, and then self-actualization needs, knowing that you have a purpose. Now, if you just studied Maslow's five needs, I was a psychology major in college, and we studied this quite often. The, the, the best way to reach humanity is discover what are your needs and how can I meet them. That's why I can go over to India a third world country, and I can go to the remote areas of India where there's heavy poverty, and I can bring food, which then feeds people for a little bit, helps them, and I can turn on some lights, put a stage out there, and 500,000 people will come to hear what I have to say. Now, if I do that in America, you might have 50 people come because that's not their number one need. Are you following me? What is the need of my neighbor? What is the need of my family member? What is the need? And then ask yourself, can I meet that need? Can I meet that need? Now, here's what I know. You can't meet everyone's needs, but when God brings somebody across your path, know this. That's not by coincidence. It's so that you can get into their life. Keep open house. Be generous with your life. Boy, if we could ever get that down. Keep open house, be generous with your life, add value to them. And then finally, you value people by seeing them the way Jesus sees people. And I'll kind of wrap this up because we're out of time. I just want to share this one little thought, this one little story. When Colleen and I got saved 40 years ago, we were saved about three or four months into our Christianity. We're out on the streets, we're ministering to homeless people. And you, some of you have heard this story before, but it, it bears repeating for those of you who haven't heard this because it, it's at the core of what started us in, in, in ministry. We're ministering to home, homeless people on the streets and this one particular guy, his name was Cecil. Cecil Markham, God brought him before me and I started ministering to him and he was very inebriated. And as I've said many times before, when people are inebriated, they're very open to the gospel. No, it's true. You go to a bar, you can talk to people about Jesus all day long. If, if they've been drinking long enough, you got an open door through alcohol. Not, not recommending that necessarily, but I'm just saying, just saying. I think Jesus might do that. So anyway, 
because they, they really complain about it. You're hanging out with all these people that are drinking and partying and all this kind of stuff. Why are you hanging out with these people? He said, you know, don't you remember? I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. I didn't come, uh, I didn't come for church people. I came for people who don't go to church. All right, so we shared, I share the gospel with him. He opens his heart up. He received Christ. He's very drunk. He said, I've been living on the street for 33 years. I've never, never been in anybody's home in 33 years. 33 years I've not been in people's homes. I said, well, then come into my home. So he came into my home. And I said, now, <clears throat> there's a shower over there. I want you to take a shower. I've got some clothes for you. So I put some clothes out for him to wear. He got out of the shower because he was quite dirty. He'd been living under a bridge. Put some clothes on. And I'm, I'm sure some of you are going, aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid he's gonna do something to you? I'm 23 years old. I had no fear at 23. <laughs> at 23, I figured I can handle myself. I can take care. If he starts to do something crazy, I, can. I, I don't recommend this to a family with little children, okay? I'm not saying for you to do that. But in my case, I was single, living in a single apartment. I figured I could do it. So he gets out, gets his clothes on, and then that night I start talking to him. And this is, a, this is, this is no exaggeration. When I led him to the Lord, Somehow, God supernaturally sobered him up, just sobered him up so that he could understand what I was saying to him. He went through the DTs that night, and I, I walked through that with an alcoholic, what that looks like. And the next day, I took him to a rehab center, and I said, I'll be here every day, either before or after work, to see you. For two weeks, I visited him. When he got out, I helped him get a job with a construction company, helped him get an apartment. He lived with me for a little while, then I helped him get an apartment, then helped him buy a car, and then he became an usher in our church. And then he became an evangelist in the homeless community. And every Sunday, I'd drive this big old cargo van that I had from a previous job that had no seats in it. And I would pile in homeless people in lawn chairs. And they'd all just sit in their lawn chairs. And every time we go around the curb, they'd all fall over. <laughs> this is no lie. And I would come into this little bitty church with 15 to 16 homeless people. Colleen and I would bring them in. The church didn't like that too much. But we brought them in. And slowly but surely, we realized that God values homeless people just as much as he values church people. <laughs> a year later, Colleen and I would get married. Her father would, couldn't participate because he was of the Catholic faith, felt like she had left the faith, so he didn't come to our wedding. So we stuck a tuxedo on Cecil, and he walked Colleen down the aisle and gave her away at our wedding. <laughs> a homeless person. That started something inside of me. It started me seeing people differently. Rather than seeing them through the lens of their failures and their problems and their mistakes and their sins, I started seeing them through the lens of Jesus. Jesus sees every human being with value. Every human being has value. That's why... I don't struggle with racial problems because I don't see people through the lens of their race. I used to, but now when Jesus comes in, he delivered me from that. That's why we have a church of 140-something nations, because we started valuing other races as much as we valued our own. Why do we have people in this church who are wealthy and people in this church who are poor? Because we've taught that God is no respecter of people. We don't sit the rich people on the front and the poor people in the back. If anything, we give honor to people who are struggling in life more than the people who are not struggling in life. Jesus values. When he hung on that cross and shed his blood, he didn't shed his blood for church people. He shed his blood for the whole world, for every faith, for every political persuasion for every sexual orientation. He shed his blood for the whole earth. How can I expect anybody who has all these differences in their life that don't align with the word of God to align with God's word until they see somebody on the earth that values them like Christ values them? <laughs> what if this church would just put aside all of our politics all of our rights and wrongs in the earth? What if we put aside trying to be right all the time and everybody else is wrong 
and just said, how can I value people who are different from me, who haven't lined up with my lifestyle, who don't think like I think, who don't act like I do. I don't live like them. I don't take on their way of life, but I value them. You cannot contain, a church cannot contain the people that will come to Christ when the church values people. I'm just telling you that right now. So I wanna pray right now. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to ask yourself, will I become the kind of person that values others as much as I value myself? My opinion, my way of thinking, my way of life. What if I could just let that, put that on the altar for right now and just start to see through the lens of Jesus? the lost and dying world that's out there waiting for me. The evangelism opportunities that I have every single day if I can just get out of myself and start thinking about others. It starts with one simple statement in my life, Lord, I don't wanna be religious. I wanna have a real relationship with you, Jesus. So if you're here today and you don't have a real relationship with Jesus that has transformed your heart like that, whether you're online, whether you're at Hamilton Mill, whether you're at uh, Mid Midtown, wherever you are, I want you to just take a moment and I want you to repent. I really wanna call our church to repentance for anything that we've done that would misrepresent the beauty and the value that Jesus has for the earth. And if you will, I'm gonna lead us in a prayer of repentance and getting our hearts right with God as we start this new year, as we're emancipating greatness in our life. Let's say this together, Jesus, right now, I repent of anything in my life, anything in my heart that has misrepresented you on this earth. I repent of my sins and I ask you to forgive me. I believe in you, Jesus, more than just in my head. I believe in my heart that you are God who died for my sins and you rose from the dead. I'm asking you right now to come into my heart and drive out any darkness that's in me and replace it with love and light and goodness, transform me into a new creation that values people like you do. Now lift up your hands. We lift up our hands now and we surrender to you, Holy Spirit. And we just invite you to come now, have your way with us today as we close in reminding ourselves of the great faithfulness of God in our lives. We thank you for these things and thank you for all that have come to Christ today in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. Come on, let's all stand to our feet and let's close with worship.